Welcome to the News from the Front podcast. This is the second part of our look at alcohol in the Great War. If you missed the first part, you might want to go back and listen to the first episode to get the uh, full experience. And as always, if you want to read the transcript or follow along on the transcript and see the uh, pictures related to the subject uh, that are in the full article, go over to Substack. Uh, search for news from the front and subscribe and that way you'll be able to see uh, the writing side of things okay let's get on with the episode everything you hold very vile to the state On rare occasions, excesses were officially sanctioned as a precursor to combat. In these cases, it seems that the strict regulation of the rum ration wasn't observed, and these incidents are the likely causes for myths about young men being battle-doped so that they would venture out into the face of certain death. These apparently isolated incidents seem to have either been a localised decision by an officer or a mistaken over-allocation of the spirit. For example, Corporal Dan Murray of the King's Own Yorkshire Light Infantry remembered how before the Somme offensive, at about 12pm, each dugout had a gallon bottle of rum put in the dugout. Nearly every man was drunk, blind drunk. I thought to myself, this looks to me like a sacrifice. I never touched any. I determined to keep my head, just as well I did. Another anonymous source recalled how, once again on the Somme, before the attack there was, the only time I saw it, an unrestricted issue of rum. There was a large jar of rum being passed round, and the men holding their mess tins out for it. At the request of the artillery, the attack was postponed for an hour, and the rum was still being passed around in that hour. I just had a sip but a lot of older soldiers were walloping it down. When we eventually went over, they were a mob of raving, screaming maniacs. Some even forgot to take their rifles. Luckily, they met little opposition and took their objective. The account continues. One man said to me afterwards, I don't remember a lot about it, but we must have frightened the bloody daylights out of Jerry. The King's regulations were abundantly clear that drunkenness on duty was an offence and would result in the culprit being placed in close arrest, alone if possible, and maybe deprived of his boots, except when the weather is cold and he is likely to suffer in consequence. Once under arrest, the soldier was to be given time to sober up before his offence would be investigated by an officer. For this purpose, 24 hours should usually be allowed to elapse before the investigation. Whilst the regulations were clear, In practice, a certain latitude was extended to the men. Whether this was, as we've seen, in the practical business of keeping morale intact, in extending a kindness to those who needed it, or in overlooking indiscretions in otherwise reliable soldiers, the regulations were often set aside. This was particularly true on special occasions. For example, on Christmas Day 1916, Brian Lawrence recounted how, as we had a large supply of drink, I went round the company and distributed a bottle of port and a bottle of brandy to each platoon, strictly against regulations of course, 
but I think it marked the occasion in a fitting manner and did no harm. Officers were not subject to the same restrictions as the other ranks and were allowed to buy spirits, generally whiskey, to consume as they saw fit. Of course, to buy alcohol, they needed money. Junior officers weren't paid particularly well, so were unlikely to purchase whiskey all the time. However, the demand was there, and the ever-resourceful Harrods department store was there to serve that demand, with an offer to ship cases of whiskey to France at three shillings a bottle. Sharing a drink with their fellow officers was a convivial, social and bonding experience. On arrival at a unit, officers were often greeted with the ordinary courtesies of the trenches in the shape of a cigarette and whiskey and water in a tin cup. For officers subject to enormous amounts of stress, the responsibilities of command and the need to maintain the bearing of an officer, many found that whiskey could become a very useful tool in their armoury. Lieutenant Arthur Graham West recounted how, when under heavy shellfire, he drank enough whisky to enable me to view the prospect with nothing but interested excitement, and really did not flinch as the shells fell. Edmund Campion, having found the value of a stiff whisky to steady his nerves, later saw a fellow officer shaking with fear under shellfire, and gave him a whacking dose of rum to send him off to sleep in an alcoholic stupor. Whilst whisky was the usual drink for officers, other beverages were available. Champagne was favoured by many, with one bim tenant, noting that when one comes in at 3am after no sleep for 50 hours, it gives one the strength to undress. Port was another choice, and a range of drinks were often an integral part of an officer's mess when things were quiet in the line. The names of British Mark I tanks that took place at the Battle of Fleur Corselette in September 1916, Chablis, Champagne, Chartreuse, Cognac, Cordon Rouge and Crom de Monthe, along with other more martial names, hint at the range of drinks that officers were capable of recalling from memory. Second Lieutenant Stuart Cloet recounted how Dinner was like lunch, only more elaborate with wine to drink or whiskey and soda, and it ended with liqueurs. One company of the Royal Fusiliers, looking forward to the Battle of the Somme, took a range of drinks with them into the line, including six bottles of vintage wine, brandy, curaco, and other essentials. Despite their access to unrestricted alcohol, it seems the officers largely kept within their limits, or at least were unlikely to get into trouble if they didn't. 252 officers were subject to court-martial trials during the Great War, with the most common offence being drunkenness, accounting for 52% of cases. However, such small numbers probably conceal many cases of officers who drank to excess and were never prosecuted. Take for example the account of Robert Graves, who maintained that the unfortunates were officers who had endured two years or more of continuous trench service, in many cases they became dipsomaniac. I knew three or four who had worked up to the point of two bottles of whiskey a day before being lucky enough to get wounded or be sent home in some or other way. The satirical trench paper The B.E.F. Times of the 10th of April 1917 took a satirical look at the problem with an advert for the drink habit and a promise that abstainers could be converted within just three days. 
Graves was able to see the stress in others and later admitted that he himself was drinking a bottle a day during late September and early October 1915, during the offensive against La Basse. Obviously, heavy drinking wouldn't have helped with decision-making amongst the officers, but given that much of the war was just a case of sticking it, it seems that alcohol helped with that. Off-duty, the soldiers were able to purchase drink behind the lines in cafes, restaurants and estaminets, but in separate establishments serving the officers and the men. The authorities controlled opening hours and restricted those serving other ranks from providing spirits, although enforcing this wasn't always easy. For the officers, a better class of establishment was available. We think it was Robert Graves who recounted in a letter to his old school's magazine how in Bethune, the Café de Globe, a place that would serve cocktails, was frequented by the officers and... Every officer's charger in at least eight divisions knows the way to its doors. From early dawn to the curfew toll, they are lined up in the sunny square outside, chestnut, black, roan, bay, sorrel and mouse-coloured, waiting for their masters that are drinking inside. Rum wasn't just useful for warming cold sentries and making officers feel a little braver, though. Private Philip Cullen of the Oxford and Buckinghamshire Light Infantry recalled how in July and August, this was on the Somme, the flies and the stench were terrible. It was piteously hot, and the dead don't stay very long before they start to smell. If it hadn't been for Bill Healy, our second sergeant, I don't suppose I should have been here. He saw me laying and panting. I couldn't breathe. The stench had got into my throat. I don't know where the hell he got it from, but Bill always had a water bottle full of rum. He poured it down me. I was spluttering and it cut whatever was in my throat. I was able to breathe again. For those tasked of the unenviable job of recovering and burying the dead, a stiff drink could be an important crutch. Private Ernest Spillett of the Canadian 46th Battalion wrote in a 1917 letter about his experience. I am used to these sights. They don't have to prime me with rum before I can handle a man, although I have and do certainly drink it sometimes on those jobs but usually afterwards, to take the taste of dead men out of my mouth. The medicinal use of rum extended to the official medical infrastructure, with rum being an important painkiller and sedative for the wounded and dying. One soldier described the aftermath of an attack as smelling of rum and blood. Rum was used as an initial treatment for shell shock, with the theory that a period of sedation might be the cure. Beyond its immediate medical uses, the rum ration may have helped to prevent soldiers from reporting sick. A Black Watch medical officer, Lieutenant Colonel James S.Y. Rogers, explained to the War Office Committee on Shell Shock that had it not been for the rum ration, I do not think we should have won the war. It seems that the medical authorities were torn between the value of alcohol in boosting morale and concern over the negative effects. Away from the army, the British Royal Flying Corps was no stranger to the value and dangers of alcohol. The airmen experienced a very different type of war. Away from the trenches, the opportunity for regular supply of drink existed and, with most being officers, they were not subject to the rules governing other ranks. In common with the army, alcohol was used as a social bonding glue, a lubricant to ease away fear and a way of handling the sustained levels of stress to which they were subjected. 
Pilots and observers shared a core fear, that of being burned alive in a doomed aircraft. This spectre of a horrible death haunted even the most experienced airmen. Mick Manock, recounting his first Flamerino when he shot down Lieutenant Fritz Freak. It was a horrible sight and it made me feel sick. Drinks in the officer's mess helped turn these events and the repeated loss of many comrades, particularly when life expectancy for new RFC pilots was startlingly short, into an opportunity for black humour. End of day drinks might be enough for many, but some men drank more than others. As one account goes, show me a good, stout-hearted, cool, dependable air fighter and I'll show you nine times out of ten a hard drinker. It lets them relax, it enabled them to forget, and it made them sleep. Squadron parties, or drunks, were organised, or happened, regularly. Little excuse was needed. Combat success, heavy losses, a gallantry award to one of their number, or even the whim of a commanding officer could result in a bloody wonderful drunk. Parties were occasions for raucous singing, practical jokes and boisterous, often violent games. The classic Air Force song, The Dying Airman, included the verse And get you six brandies and sodas, and lay them all out in a row, and get you six other good airmen to drink to this pilot below. Drinking culture is also evident in 46 Squadron's signature cocktail, Health and Strength, of which Arthur Gould Lee wrote Everyone has to like it, whether he does or not. It's made of eggs, brandy, port, and several kinds of liquor. We drank it at the dinner table, one foot on the chair, the other on the table, to the toast, Cheerio 46, yelled very, very ear-splittingly. Once the party was underway, boisterous behaviour was the order of the day. Visiting officers were de-bagged, that's their trousers being forcibly removed. Arse prints were made on ceilings, and moustaches might be shaved off. Violent games such as soda siphon fights, indoor contact sports and a game known as High Cockalorum which involved forming a single row of about a dozen men into a scrum and then allowing attackers to jump in and jump on the scrum's backs to try and collapse it. Not surprisingly, injuries occurred as backs were injured, limbs got broken and broken glass flew about. It wasn't to every participant's taste. As an American pilot said... These Englishmen sure have a funny idea of a party. They want to smash everything. As in the trenches, special occasions were an opportunity for a party. Sergeant Horace Hales of 24 Squadron described Christmas Day 1916 in a letter to his sisters. The meal began soberly enough with roast pork and turkey, Brussels sprouts, potatoes, Xmas pudding and custard, washed down with copious draughts of beer and lemonade. So far so good for teetotal Horace. But in the evening a concert was held with singing, magic shows and plenty of fruit. And whisper it not to the band of hope meeting. Beer, cider, champagne etc. As was to be expected there were some comical and pitiable sights to be seen. On Boxing Day it was the officers and senior NCO's turn. Horace goes on. In the evening... Our concert was again invaded by the officers, who seemed to prefer our evenings to those in their own mess. They turned the place upside down, broke plates and glasses, also the door off the hinges, fell through the floor, bulged the walls, went outside and came back covered in mud, having fallen in rainwater pits. One man was drinking neat whiskey and Benedictine liquor 
and soon became lively. By aid of grease paints, they gave this man a gorilla-like appearance, which caused immense fun. He tried to kiss and cuddle the officers, who thoroughly enjoyed it and accepted the embraces gracefully. Of course, not every airman drank to excess all the time, as being drunk or hungover was unlikely to result in high-quality flying. Sholto Douglas, commanding a squadron, explained how parties were important for my pilots to let off steam, but had to be limited as we could not indulge in heavy drinking and fighting in the air at the same time. Others recognised the dangers as individuals. Reginald Full James, flying with 53 Squadron, said that life was always dangerous and a wise man was not drunk too often. Away from the British experience, the French poilu, that's the French equivalent of the word Tommy, carried a two-litre flask which could be filled with wine, water or coffee depending on the soldier's preference. Some soldiers chose to buddy up with a friend, one carrying one drink, one another, so they had options available. Wine was issued to the men, initially in quarter-litre rations, pinata, and later half a litre per day. Of course, many Frenchmen considered that this was totally inadequate. The French army took the supply of wine to the troops seriously, and the men rarely missed out. After all, wine was important for maintaining morale. Red wine was provided as the norm, as it was considered more masculine than vin blanc, and therefore contributed more to the men's fighting spirit. Additional wine could be purchased, and stronger drinks were available behind the lines, sometimes purchasable from brothels alongside other services. Whilst the French wine supply was generally assured, the quality was not. Wine ranged from types that you and I might recognise, through to jellied wine that had to be heated to return it to liquid form. The wine was generally from lower quality regions, such as the south of France. The men were not getting fine bottles of Bordeaux delivered to the trenches. The wine available to the troops was called Pinard, basically a cheap wine as we would say in English, a plonk. The Pinard rapidly carved its place in popular culture, with songs, cartoons and even being beatified with the name Saint Pinard on account of its ability to bless the troops. Like rum for the British, Pinard made its way into popular culture with the soldier's song Vive le Pinard, which translated begins like this. On the roads of France and Navarre, the soldier sings while carrying his stuff, an authentic and bizarre song whose refrain is Long live the Pinard. One, two, Pinard is a cheap wine. It warms up wherever it goes. Go ahead, soldiers. Fill my glass. Long live Pinard. Long live Pinard. For more extreme situations, a stronger spirit such as a cognac might be issued. This was generally doled out before an attack, but might also appear in particularly poor weather conditions. On the 1st of January and Bastille Day, the 14th of July, additional wine and rations were provided. In 1916, the wine ration increased again to three quarters of a litre as a part of the French army's attempt to keep morale together after the Verdun battles and the dangers of mutiny within the army. Whilst the French army was enthusiastic in embracing its drink allowance, the American army was mostly dry and their 1917 army manual made the official position abundantly clear. Do not drink whiskey or beer, especially in the field. It will weaken you and favour heat exhaustion, sunstroke, 
Frostbite and other serious troubles. Alcohol muddles the mind and clouds thoughts and so causes a feeling of carelessness and silliness that may ruin some military plan or give the whole thing away to the enemy and with it the lives of yourself and your comrades. Strong stuff. In the United States, the army had been protected from temptation by a five-mile no-alcohol limit around military bases. But in Europe, General Pershing realised the futility of enforcing this – remember, they often fought alongside the French – and relaxed the rule, allowing his men to partake like wine and beer, but not as a part of their rations. Sticking with the Entente, the Italian army was subject to harsh discipline and had only two outlets available to ease their existence, sex and alcohol, both of which were generally condoned, the former through provision of military brothels, the latter by provision of a quarter of a litre of wine per day. Brandy and grappa were supplied on a less frequent basis when morale or fighting spirit required it. After the Battle of Caporetto in 1917, when the Italians were roundly defeated by the German and Austro-Hungarian armies, the Italians lost around 5 million litres of wine and 1,600 litres of cognac, which must have been a significant blow to morale. However, in an unexpected silver lining, it appears that delays caused by German and Austro-Hungarian consumption of this exciting war booty significantly slowed down exploitation of the Italian retreat. The German alcohol ration varied depending on the origin of the units receiving it. Bavarian regiments, for example, tended towards beer, whilst units from wine-producing regions would get wine. This must have complicated the supply situation, but probably reduced production issues as there was no need to concentrate the industry on a particular product. German soldiers would, accordingly, receive a fourth of a litre of wine, half a litre of beer, or 125 millilitres of schnapps or brandy. Austro-Hungarian soldiers tended to be given wine. Whilst the flavours, strength and national culture might change across the belligerents, experiences tended not to. Ernst Junger, in his memoir Storm of Steel, recounted how after taking heavy losses, the last two, as sure as death, were to be found on the first evening of rest, over the bottle, drinking a silent health to their dead companions. He went on explaining how they drank heavily until we treated the whole world as no more than a laughable phantom that circled around our table. Whether drinking to forget, to feel a little braver because it was cold and miserable, to dull pain or just because it was there, alcoholic drink clearly played its role in the Great War. Despite the views about its indispensability that were expressed by men and the officers, the predominantly dry American, Russian and Muslim countries show it was perfectly possible to fight without an institutionalised supply of alcohol to the armies in the field. In this respect, the temperance-minded moral citizens who spoke out about the supply of alcohol were right. However, it seems to me that if your army had a tradition of supplying alcohol in the field, it became an indispensable and essential part of the supply chain needed to keep the army fighting. Examples where alcohol rations were withheld or when supplies were patchy show that the men of the army felt entitled 
to the small crumb of comfort that their drink ration brought to their often difficult existence, and this directly contributed to morale. Whether it was alcohol, cigarettes, hot food, mail from home, leave, or simply rotation away from the front lines, no one factor was critical in maintaining morale. It was possible for any given army to have varying levels of provision of these various elements and still maintain morale. But should one of these elements that had been available be withdrawn, this was the point where morale was impacted. And woe betide any government that messed around needlessly with things their army had grown accustomed to. Cheers. Sante. Chin chin. Cheref and Prost to you all. That brings us to the end of our look at alcohol in the Great War. I do hope you've enjoyed that second episode, and indeed the first episode. As always, please share this podcast with anyone you think might be interested, and if you want to give me a shout, uh, there's contact methods uh, scattered around the internet on the News From The Front links. These articles take a long time to write. We're talking multiple books, multiple days of work going into these. So please do support uh, the podcast if you can. That would be very much appreciated. And thank you very much for listening and your continued support with subscribing and picking up each episode as it comes out. It's appreciated. Thanks a lot. Bye bye.